Lord, asking of our needs and desires for the hope of His kingdom as it spreads throughout all the earth. Will you bow your heads with me as we go before the Lord in a prayer of intercession? Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great time and opportunity, even the great privilege it is to come as your children before your throne asking, asking of great things. And we begin, O oh Lord, by thinking of those in the civil realm over us. We think of the various local leaders that rule us, the mayors, the city councils that are all represented here, even within our own congregation in the various townships. We pray, O oh Lord, for all of them, that by their rules, that we, O oh Lord, would be a people that would prosper and live in peace. We pray, O oh Lord, by your grace and mercy, that these who rule us, O oh Lord, would be in a manner that seek to uphold the law written upon their heart. The law that we find scribed out in the book of Exodus, that is written upon every one of our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, that our leaders would rule us well, and that, O oh Lord, in that rule, your church would prosper here even in Troy. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the work of the church. We think of the regional church and the denominational church as we think of the PCA this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, for Ileana Presbytery. We pray, O oh Lord, that as though they will not meet this summer, as they prepare and do the work of the church throughout the summer as it leads into the fall, that you would bless all the churches that are within our region. All of the churches, O oh Lord, that continue to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a dead and dying world, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would send help to all of our churches, whether they be here in Troy and Edwardsville or all the way to Evansville where the other Providence Presbyterian Church is or even in Kentucky. We pray, O oh Lord, for all that are in our region and we pray that you would bless these congregations well, with a continued growth and grace and truth within their congregations. We pray, O oh Lord, that the church, the PCA, would continue to be a beacon of truth, proclaiming Christ not only in the United States, but throughout the world. We pray, O oh Lord, for our stated clerk, Brian Chapel, as he seeks to lead us as a clerk should in keeping us organized and well-regulated, pushing the gospel forward through the various agencies of the church. Grant mercy to Dr. Chapel in this difficult endeavor and work, but also, Lord, grant mercy to all in our denomination. May we hasten ourselves, O Lord, with zeal and grace as we seek to show Christ to those who do not know him. We also pray, O Lord, for those who do not know him in other religions. We think of Islam or Hinduism, the secular religion that we see within our own country all too often. We think of those who do not know you, who subscribe to heretical groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, also the Mormons. We pray, O oh Lord, all who do not know you, all who subscribe to a false teaching, would come with this heart softened by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear the gospel, to profess the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the Savior of sinners, the one who redeems. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who do not know you, and we pray, O oh Lord, for an end of all religion that denies the true and living God. We also pray, O oh Lord, for our own congregation. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the relative peace we've experienced in many regards over the last six months. But we pray, O oh Lord, that our congregation would be a congregation that pursues the peace and purity of the church. Calm our hearts, calm our minds, 
instill within our culture, O Lord, peace and purity. May our congregation grow in these virtues. May they be emblems of our example and witness to Christ within the congregation, but also on the outside. We pray in like manner for those who are ailing. We think of Joanne as she had skin graft surgery just but a few days ago. We pray, O Lord, that this graft would take, that by your grace and mercy there will be no infection, that you will restore Joanne in strength, and that in that strength, O Lord, that she will be able to gather even this Sunday, this coming Sunday, to worship you here with us. In like manner, we pray also for Molly, as she will be having surgery here in a few days as well. We pray, O Lord, that you would be gracious to her, that you would be merciful to her, and that the replacement surgery that takes place on the 25th would go extremely well, not only for her benefit, but for the great opportunity to declare your grace and mercy in her own lives to those around her. We, O Lord, are excited for the opportunity therein for Molly. But we pray, O Lord, that you prepare her heart, mind, and soul to undergo this surgery, to undergo it well. Lord, prepare her for the trials, the rehabilitation, but also instill within her an excited heart, an excited heart that shows perhaps the physical change that she'll experience as it is perhaps even an emblem of the spiritual change in all of our lives. We thank you, O Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has granted us humble access here this morning before your throne. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke with me. Today we look at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can indulge me on this Lord's Day morning to have Christmas music. The last time I chose Christmas songs outside the holiday of Christmas, it came with repercussions. And so I hope today you'd indulge me by singing a few Christmas carols, as it were. And it is actually more relevant than the last time I chose Christmas music. Um, And so hopefully that will stave off any objections. But we are looking at the birth of Christ. And what better songs to sing than the song we just sang and the song we'll sing here in a few moments after the sermon as we honor the birth of Christ here in this world. I could have chose for the title of this sermon, and it was really hard not to, Christmas in July. It was, it was alluring to me. I ran it by some of my, my testers in the congregation and how they would think of such a sermon. They thought it was cheesy to name a sermon such as that, and so I've spared you. There is no Christmas in July at Providence Presbyterian Church, but what there is, is a a Lord Jesus Christ that is closer than you think. And so we'll be looking, perhaps, though, a very Christmas text in a very general way. We're looking at not merely the true meaning of Christmas, but the Lord himself condescending to us in that feeding trowel in Bethlehem. Stand then as we hear the Word of God found in Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 21 verses here. Luke 2, chapter, or verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Cornarius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all people. And for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and, or on, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that is happened, that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. At the end of the eighth day, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The grass withers, but the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Sometimes people are closer, or things are closer than they first appear. I'm reminded of one of my uh, favorite movies from the late 80s going into the early 90s, and I guess even now today, of Jurassic Park. If you recall in Jurassic Park, the most terrifying scene in the first movie is when the T-Rex finally gets out of the enclosure and it's raining outside and it's chasing a Jeep. And as the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep, the camera zooms in on the rear view mirror and it says objects in this mirror may be closer than they appear. I was looking at it at my own car as I was driving over here today thinking about the illustration. Objects in this mirror are closer than they appear. And it is the same perhaps with God. God is often closer than he appears. Maybe like a mirror as you're looking for a car that's in your blind spot. They might be closer, he might be closer then he first appears. I'm sure that's what the, the, uh, the shepherds thought as they were shepherding in the field and wondering, where is God for the past 400 years in the life of Israel? He seems so distant. 
We've not heard any proclamation of the closeness of God from the, in the temple for such a long time. And yet what the shepherds learn quite quickly is that the Lord is closer than he appears. He is very close. So close that in that one night, they walk and see the Savior before him, before them. God is closer than he appears. Have you ever felt in your own life or experienced a God that seems distant? Perhaps during this season, it seems that the countenance of God is removed from you and you're wondering, oh Lord, where are you? The Lord sometimes in our own lives seems far off. He seems distant. But does the Lord abandon his people? Is the Lord truly distant? Do we live like deists where, yes, we believe in a God, but he is outside of the realm of having any interaction with humanity? Is God removed or is he close? I want to make the argument today that the Lord is closer than he appears. And we see that in this passage before us at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God seems distant, I want you to know this, remember the birth of Christ. When God seems distant, remember the birth of Christ. There are some reasons why we should remember the birth of Christ. The first is found within the first seven verses. Why do we need to remember the birth of Christ when God seems distant? Because it reminds us that God works in history by Christ. That God works in history. Look how normal it is. In the days of the decree went out Caesar Augustus to all the world should be registered. It is such a, a time that is grounded in history. God works in this passage in history. The birth of Christ is grounded in the historical moment in the time of Israel. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus, as this passage reveals to us. But not only that, it is during the governorship of Cornarius. It's in the time where Joseph departs from a real city, Nazareth, and goes up to Bethlehem, or goes down to Bethlehem. There are historical markers all over the passage that remind us that God works in history. God's work in history, as we just read perhaps in our, our catechism, the decrees of God and his works of providence, he works even in the life of Caesar and his decrees. He uses the decrees of Caesar in this passage in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. Micah reminds us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And how does the Lord bring that about? He uses Caesar Augustus, a man that knows not the true and living God. God works in history. I'm sure that as we think through it, sometimes we look around our own hearts and lives. We, we look out and we say, how is the Lord working? And it might be even mysterious in many ways, but the God, God uses history. I'm sure these Jews, the, the Mary and Joseph, as they were traveling, they were saying in their own heart, Why, O oh Lord, while I am so close to being with child, have you issued a decree through Caesar Augustus for me to travel? My wife and I are trying not to travel much as we await our own little child, and I would be distraught if Mr. Biden made a decree that I must go back to my own town to be registered. We would be distraught. We don't want to do that. Maybe these parents of Jesus thought the same thing. Ugh, what kind of providence is this that we must go 
to our own town to be registered. But the Lord works through Caesar. He works through his decree. What are God's works of providence? The larger catechism says it even further than we already said it. His works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful will, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all of their actions to his own glory. The Lord is providential, even over the house of Caesar, as this decree goes out to the people. We must remember the sovereignty of God. We are a Presbyterian church, and we place a premium on the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. It means that he is the ruler over all of creation. Every ruler on earth is under the rule of God himself. He is truly sovereign. And what we learned before in the catechism uh, just a few weeks ago is that it is the Lord, by his own glory, he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. He is working at this moment in the life of these two people to prepare the Messiah to be born. He is ordering it. He works in history. It may seem somewhat grandiose, maybe in this passage. But I also want you to note that as the Lord works in history, he works through common events and days. You might think that the birth of the Messiah is extraordinary and truly is. But look at how ordinary Joseph and Mary's life are as they go. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, to be registered with his betrothed, and after some time, they gave birth. It's just so ordinary when you think about it. Their lives are ordinary. Their lives are ordinary, and yet God uses their ordinary lives in his great plan for redemption. Let me just break down the trip maybe in common terms that maybe we would understand. Mary and Joseph, they decide to go on a trip, a family trip, to visit family down south, in and near Jerusalem. They go there and they have to fill out a census in order to pay their April 15th taxes by their right deadline. She is with child and while she is there, she goes into labor and has a child. How ordinary does all of that sound? Going on a, a, a vacation in some regard. Being counted, filling out those census that you know every 10 years they come to your door and they want you to answer all this information. I hate answering it. I don't want the government knowing anything about me. It's all so ordinary. It's like going to the DMV and having to re-register your vehicle after you have the emissions test done. It's so ordinary and mundane. And yet the Lord uses the ordinary and mundane for His eternal purposes, for His glory. He uses our ordinary lives, the stuff that we often wonder, why do we have to do this every day? He uses for His glory. But He also works not only in a people that have mundane lives, which are probably most of us, he also works in lowly people. Look at the life of Mary. When she gave birth to her firstborn son in verse 7, she wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there's no place for them in the end. There are lowly people. God works not only with the greatest Caesar, as we hear in this passage through the decree, but he also works in the lowliest people. Look at the life of Mary and Joseph. I have a lot of nitpicks with verse 7 as how it's translated. I don't like much of it. We all love the manger, 
It's an empty feeding trowel. Perhaps maybe it was created of metal or even cement and clay. But feeding trowels don't sell like manger sell. So we, we translate it manger. We also see in this passage that we see them in the inn. But it, was it an inn? Probably not. There's another word in the passage that could be used to say that they went to a motel. Well, it was more likely as they went to town and Joseph had many family and relatives there. This is Joseph, son of David, you must remember. He is Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methot, son of Levi, of the house of David. There are many homes when he went to Bethlehem that he could have stayed in. That word there probably is better translated guest room within the home. There's no room in the guest room because everybody had come into town and they were counting all the people. And so instead of having a room in the guest room as perhaps you would house some of your family, they had to go where the cat slept. In our house, that would be the laundry room. In their house, that would have been a sub-below floor level where you brought in the animals that couldn't survive outside because of various reasons. It would have still been in the house. They were, not, they were not cast out as your manger scenes that you probably put up every December show, where it's almost like a barn experience. It's not a barn. But they were lowly. They were lowly enough that they weren't privileged to have the guest room in the home. They had to go sleep with the animals. I'm sure they cleaned it up all well nice. My family often does when they, when they have us visit. They clean it all up nice. But it would be like living in an unfinished basement. That's where Mary and Joseph are. Minor soapbox, but they are lowly. They are lowly people. And God works with all three of those. He works with the great decree of Caesar above him. He works through the ordinary and mundane lives of those who worship him. And he works even in the lowly among us. It's a reminder for all of us. It is a good reminder that God works in our ordinary lives. When I was a boy, I envisioned a life of grandeur, of excitement, that every day would reel with excitement. Maybe you have a similar experience, but as you age, it seems so ordinary, mundane. I wake up every morning at six, I get ready, I go to work, I have a cup of coffee before I go to work, I read my Bible, act work, I have my cup, first cup of coffee there, my second overall, I'll be in planning for the week. It's all so ordinary. Do you have an ordinary life? Do you have a life where you wonder, well, what's the purpose of doing all this laundry, all this meal prep, this dropping off the kids and picking them up from school for practice, those mundane tasks at work that no one likes to do, the doctor's visits, the visits to the DMV, the changing of addresses, the yard work, the paying of bills, all so mundane and ordinary. Things that I wish I could forget so that I can focus on the exciting stuff. Well, the Lord uses all of that. He uses the mundane. He uses the ordinary for His own glory and for your good. So the next time you wonder... How is the Lord honored in this laundry? How is the Lord honored in my meal prep? How is the Lord honored with cleaning the toilet and vacuuming the house and doing dishes? The Lord is honored because he works in history for his own glory and your good. Remember that. 
When God seems distant, remember that God works in history and he works in your home even today. But second, I want you to see that not only does God work in history by Christ, God also declares his glory in Christ. That's what we see with the visitation of the angels here. Look down at verse 8 with me. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord was shown to them, bright light. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, as they often say, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. We have the third angelic visit in these first two chapters of Luke. We don't know who this angel is. Could it be Gabriel? Who knows? I don't know. But it is an angel. And it is a very common experience that we've already seen. When an angel appears, people tremble. I heard uh, Larry a few weeks ago talk about his own experience with a, p- a potential angel in his home through the work of a firefly or a lightning bug, whatever you call them here. I think it's lightning bug. Oh, what did Larry do? You know, it sounds exciting. It sounds enthralling. I just wish an angel would, would visit me. That would be so not mundane and ordinary. But as Larry reminds us, it is a, a trembling experience. Every person that has come in contact with an angel in this passage was petrified. We heard during Easter a few months ago when we were looking at the rolling away of the tomb, the guards were petrified when the angels came down. It is a scary experience. I don't know what it's like. And I don't actually want to know what it's like. I have enough examples within the Gospel of Luke to tell me I don't want to be visited by an angel. Though they all seem good, it is a terrifying experience. But in this terrifying experience, with this another, another angelic visit, we see more revelation revealed. Fear not, I have that good news. And what is that good news? In verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the good news that these random appearing shepherds receive. Today is a day like no other. Today, the Messiah that you have long waited for, long prayed for, is here. And he is wrapped in swaddling cloth in a feeding trowel not too far from here. An extraordinary day for these shepherds. A day they would probably remember all their lives as extraordinary. God works as he declares his glory in Christ through these angels. He works. He prepares them for what they are about to experience. There's more misunderstandings and miscommunications as what the people would have expected in this passage. When you think of the city of David, you probably don't think Bethlehem. You are probably thinking perhaps of Jerusalem itself. That's where the Messiah should be born. That's where he should be honored. He should be in the temple right now, being exalted high and lifted up. But no, instead, we see that what is proclaimed by the angels is that it is the first city of David, the the, the city where David was born, the humble beginnings, the shepherd town of Bethlehem, but five miles south of Jerusalem. That is where the Messiah is born, the town of Boaz and Ruth, the town of Obed and Jesse, the town where David was from. That is where you will go. You will go back to the roots. The roots where God covenanted and prepared the way for the Davidic king. You will now 
visit the true king. The king, though a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough, who depends wholly on his mother for life at this moment, is the king that you've long awaited for. Think of how incarnate the incarnation is. At this moment, there's a newborn child that is, in outward appearances, completely helpless, needing his mother's love and tender care, needing food, needing to be changed, needing and wholly dependent upon his human mother in his humanity. The true incarnate God, such lowly humiliation. The catechism calls this the humiliation of Christ. That Christ taking on human flesh lowers himself to that low estate of being completely dependent for that season on his mother. Such a lowly experience. But this lowly experience has divine purpose. As the angels reveal, it is a time where these shepherds will come and as they see that what appears to be helpless child, they will praise him for he is great. Think of how uncomfortable it might be if you started praising a little child as a king here today. I bet many of you would think, what do they deserve my patronage and honor for? This child. I know so much more than them. That would be my natural response. If we paraded a child king up here, we'd be like, I have so much more wisdom than them, so much greater than them, so much more power than them, but not for these shepherds. They come humbly before an infant Christ declaring his glory. They hear the words of the angels. They listen and they go. Well, you might ask, why do the angels visit the shepherds? It's because the birth of Christ needs context. It needs context. Without all of these angelic visitations that we've experienced in the first two chapters of Luke, it would be a rather ordinary affair. Children being born, children needing help, but no context for who that person is whether it be John or Christ himself. We need context. Context reveals what is going on and the significance of the event here. A good example is if I invite you over to my house on August 20th and we decide to have a typical barbecue at the Edberg home, something that I would love to do, there might be a time during that event where I just start profusely blowing on all the food. I, you know, breathing in deep. <sighs> over all the food. And if I did that over all the food, you'd probably leave in disgust. Why is Scott blowing over all of our food? It's kind of disgusting. I just saw him blow in the church and there was spit flying out of his mouth. You'd never come to my house again. But if I told you August 20th was my birthday, and that there was a cake before me and everyone would have a much different demeanor. They would clap. They would cheer. They would say, good, you have another year with us. It would be an exciting event. You'd be excited for the cake I spit all over. Context matters. Context matters. And these angels provide the context for the birth of Christ here. The one that they visit in the major, they know he is one to be worshipped not because of the mere work of the Spirit in their heart, though certainly the Spirit is working, but because the angels have visited and they have revealed. In the same way, we pray 
for that sort of experience with God that, that maybe not angels, maybe that's not what we should be praying for, but the Spirit himself to work in our hearts, to reveal the purpose of this baby in a manger so that we might be like the shepherds going before Christ as, as a human with God intertwined to worship him. We need the context, much like the shepherds needed the context, much like Mary and Joseph needed the context, and Zachariah and Elizabeth and all who are around them. They all needed the context, and so do you. And that context comes through the work of the Spirit in your life. When God seems distant, remember that He is closer than He appears because it is by His Spirit in your life that reveals that the Son is the Son, that He is the one to be worshipped. When God seems distant, remember the birth of Christ. Because God works in history, because he declares his glory, but finally it's because God leads his people. They, he leads his people to Christ. That's what happens with the shepherds. What do they do once the angels leave? In verse 15 it says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, as you may expect, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they made haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the feeding trough. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. This is a common reoccurrence that we've already heard for maybe the third time in the Gospel of Luke. The angel appears. The angel says its declaration to those who were in its presence. And immediately, in haste, after the angel departs, they make their way to the sign. All but Zechariah heeded the angel's appearance. And those who heeded the angel's appearance did what the angel had revealed. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. In verse 16, it says they went with haste. They went with great eagerness, excited expectation. We are finally going to see the Messiah that we have longed for. It is with great speed they go. They drop what they're doing and they go to the cradle. They go to see the Christ. They don't doubt. They don't doubt like Zechariah doubted. They just drop everything. This event is more important than their work as shepherds. They drop everything to go to the Christ. But notice also the wonderment here. It's the same wonderment that perhaps Mary is experiencing as the mother of Christ. They are at wonderment as the angels reveal yet again another confirming story about the Son who has come. Everyone drops what they're doing. They go to where God has led them and they are all in wonderment. They don't go begrudgingly. Their, their spirits aren't like, well, maybe I have an excuse to go somewhere else. Maybe I should stop home let my wife know why I'll be late tonight. Maybe let my family know uh, how to pick up after the mess I've left in the field as a shepherd and not done my job. No, they go. Without hesitation, they go with no doubts, no questionings, no hesitations. As strange and improbable as the event that has been declared to them, they have no doubts. They make haste. They eagerly go and they are excited to see the newborn Messiah. Imagine when leading, as they maybe had gone home from their shift as shepherds, had gone to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, if they would have walked the streets without the angelic experience, they would have walked and thought nothing of the baby that was before them. 
But no, because the angels intercede, they get to experience and worship Jesus. But notice how Mary responds to this great intervention. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This word treasured up is dwelling upon a memory, storing a memory of your life. You might treasure things, you know, we're very materialistic, but that's not how Mary is viewing this. She's treasuring a moment in her life, something that she will go back to in her mind's eye all so often to recount this day. She treasured this day. And you should treasure the moment when you come before the Lord for the first time in faith, a memory that you should play over again in your mind. As young as it may be, you might not even remember it, but dwell upon that time. But Mary treasured these things. It reminds me of a memory that I treasure. I was no older than my own son, and I love my grandma. I didn't know it at the time, but she had cancer. And so I, my mom thought it'd be best if I spent a little more time with grandma. Because we didn't know how long she had. She was like a cat with nine lives. She lived until I was in high school. But when I was four, we didn't know. And so I remember this earliest memory, perhaps from my childhood, of going to grandma's house in Chicago, her making me a pallet in the middle of her living room, a nice 55-gallon uh, uh, fish tank in the background with the lights reverberating on me. My grandma had cheese and crackers, but not the, the nice cheese and crackers, the, the Ritz crackers with the canned cheese. And we played Pac-Man all night on the Atari 5200. I remember that memory so fondly. I often dwell upon it, especially after my grandma has died. I dwell upon that. A memory that I treasure. Treasure that memory very close in my own heart. And that's the type of treasuring that Mary has for this event. That treasuring. Ten years from now, after Christ dies and is resurrected, she looks back. She remembers this memory. When things are tough in her life, when she sees the Christ, her son, hanging on a tree, it's helpful to go back to those treasured memories. Those memories that remind us of the purpose of the event. It's good to go back to those meaningful moments in your sanctification when you are growing in Christ that you saw great strides in conquering sin. When you are beaten and down, when you feel uh, all the pity party that you ever want to throw because of your sin, remember those times where God has worked. He is closer than he appears, and he will continue to work like those days. Treasure those great works of God in your life. They may not seem all too often. They may seem far and in between like Abraham and his life of meeting with God. But treasure those memories. Remember those memories especially when God seems distant. That's what Mary does. When God seems distant, she treasures up the memories of God working in her life. When God seems distant, remember the birth of Christ. Why? Because God works in history, he declares his glory, and because he leads his people. He does all of these things, and when we look at the birth of Christ, we see all of them here today. Maybe today you're here and God seems distant. We've already talked about it. He, he might seem a billion light years away. You've felt the very dry faith for quite some time in this season. You wonder, will the Lord ever answer these prayers? Will the Lord ever give me solace? Will the Lord ever comfort me? Well, in times like this, remember the birth of Christ. 
that God truly is closer than he appears. That he truly is closer than he appears. That he works even in the difficult times of your life. The mundane, the ordinary. That he works is by his spirit declaring the glory of Christ in your own heart as you accept him as Savior. And that he leads you to Christ himself. Remember, when God seems distant, the Lord leads his people back. And how does he do that? He does so with passages like this that remind us of the birth of Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but go after him as the shepherds followed the angel. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have life, life, eternal life. When you seem distant from us, O Lord, we call upon you to join us. And in that joining, we call upon you to remind us of passages such as this, that when you might seem a million light years away, you condescended in the incarnation and took on human flesh to show how close you truly are. We thank you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.